Today on the Show Me Institute podcast, Susan Pendergrass is joined by Brian Riedel. Brian is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and they discuss his recent piece in National Review titled, Four Principles for a Conservative Infrastructure Alternative. For more Show Me Institute podcasts, visit showmeinstitute.org. Here's Dr. Susan Pendergrass. Uh, hey, Brian. Welcome to Infrastructure Week. Uh, it, it, it's finally real Infrastructure Week. After Groundhog Day Infrastructure starts. Week. I know we've been hearing about this forever. Well, I mean, for people who are listening to this, before we go any further, can you just give me your definition of infrastructure? Because I think that this is one of the biggest tripping up points is that people are not even sure what we're talking about when we use this word infrastructure. I define infrastructure as long-term physical capital to help the economy function often public capital. Um, If you look up definitions, basic physical structures like facilities, buildings, roads, power supplies needed for for society to operate. If you look up infrastructure in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, system of public works, buildings, equipment, that's the definition I use. Uh, So like roads, bridges, electrical grid, waterworks, things things like that. Not the way the Democrats now define infrastructure as anything we like. Uh, Anything for the economy or even just anything we like is infrastructure. There was a member of Congress who, in all seriousness, tweeted out a week ago, packing the Supreme Court is infrastructure. And and he was joking. I I think we, we, it's kind of, you know, when you see it, we know it's roads and bridges, right? We know it's airports and school buildings and things that, help us that allow us to have an economy, the structures that allow us to have an economy. Now, the federal government, well, and a lot of people complain about infrastructure because a lot of our roads are bad and our interstates are bad and people like to complain about it. But the federal government has been very generous in the past year, I would say. We have trillions to the extent that anybody can understand what a trillion is, trillions of dollars now being spent and a bunch of it supposedly pegged for infrastructure. And that's great. I mean, uh, Interstate 70 runs right across Missouri with tons of truck traffic you know, crossing our state and the, the roads in tough shape. It'd be great to be able to rebuild that. But we're just talking even more money than even that. Right. We're talking like the floodgates have opened on federal spending. Yeah, we're talking um, amounts well beyond what we typically spend on infrastructure. Right now, the federal government spends about three hundred billion dollars on infrastructure annually. Um, the rest comes from state and local governments. The, the, the amazing thing in the Biden infrastructure package is it's $4 trillion right now, and only $115 billion of it goes to roads and bridges. Wow. Which reminds me, you know, remember earlier this year when we were talking about the Biden COVID bill and how only 1% of the Biden COVID bill actually went to COVID. <laughs> only right. 1% went to vaccines. Only 115 billion out of four trillion goes to roads and bridges. You have 400 billion dollars for long-term health care and, and all these other things. So I think we all agree that we need to do more on physical infrastructure. I think you know we all we all see the potholes, we see the traffic yeah. jams, we see the the, the the bridges that are getting structurally weaker. There's more to do there, but the problem is they're not actually putting as much money into the stuff that we traditionally think is infrastructure. And additionally, they're not doing the reforms to actually make the money get spent well. We have a really inefficient infrastructure system, and they're just kind of writing checks rather than fixing it. Right. So a lot of it's going to be up to the states, right, to figure out how to spend it. And 
he's saying that it's like your grandmother normally gives you $10 for Christmas and she just gave you like $10,000, right? She gave you an exorbitant amount of money. The chances of us spending it well uh, don't seem very high. However, you have suggested basically four principles for what states should do to spend their money. Yeah, the, 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 I have an article in National Review called Four Principles for a Conservative Infrastructure, infrastructure Alternative. And the four principles, you know, number one is no new taxes or deficits. We don't need to spend $4 trillion and, 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 and go that far. But one of the ways, too, is st states should use their existing federal windfalls. Uh, states are sitting on $500 billion in recent federal aid from previous stimulus bills that they're not using. You know, they got $350 billion for budget deficits that mostly don't exist. They got $180 billion for, for school COVID reforms that aren't even going to be spent for as much as 10 years when COVID right. is assumed long gone. My proposal was the first thing we can do is why don't we have states use their $500 billion one-time windfall right. infrastructure? You don't want to do permanent policies with a one-time windfall because the, the, the commitments will last when the money is gone. But if you're looking for a one-time use, here you go. And the good thing about states using it is you don't have the federal government micromanaging it. Right now, the way we're looking at doing it is the federal government is going to send the money to the states. They're going to try to micromanage what Missouri can do. How? How would they micromanage? How? Yeah. The way often is they, they will require that states actually get federal permission for, for what projects they want to do. Um, they will actually have states will have to apply to use their own federal grant money. Really? Yes, for certain for certain projects, it, it won't it won't just be here's money to to use on the infrastructure you want. It's I mean that that's basically how the federal highway program works. It's states essentially apply to, for, to Washington for permission on how to use its own money, um, and then Washington writes a check. I would rather keep the money in the state, let Missouri decide how to spend sure. these dollars rather than some bureaucrat at the Department of Transportation in DC. I mean, I, what I've heard about Missouri um, anecdotally is that, you know, at the Show Me Institute, we were prepared for this big budget crisis in Missouri and the, the last recession and how that affected our budget. And I'm not that it's not affecting it, but we have such a cushion coming in from the federal government that what I've heard is in the budget office in Missouri, they have more money than they've ever had. They are flush with cash. And so they have the opportunity to, to do some of these things. I know in education, we're getting about $4,500 per student in federal stimulus funding. We spend about 12,000 normally. So we're getting an exorbitant amount of money. And I don't know, I suspect it'll go, I don't know what it's gonna go to. It could go to school buildings, teacher bonuses, but uh, it's a lot of money. And I'm not sure what kind of oversight there is. I agree that the federal government shouldn't be putting up uh, hoops to jump through. But I still feel like we need some sort of oversight over the spending of this money. It should, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I think the last people that I trust are are the Department of Education or the Department of Transportation to <laughs> manage <laughs> where they put the money. I do think there is a danger of this becoming a bit of a slush fund. I mean, there there is a danger of you know we're going to use this money to pay off teachers' unions or contracting union or, or construction unions, I should say, there is a big danger of this money being used in totally politically obnoxious ways to pay off interest groups. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, you mentioned education. 
$180 billion states are sitting on an unused education. Yeah. That is an enormous amount of money. And so what do you think is going on? Do you think that they don't know how to spend it? Yeah. I mean, I mean are they? Yeah. And think? when you're looking at it on top of it, the Biden infrastructure plan would give schools another hundred billion dollars. Oh they already have 180 billion that they don't know what to do with. And you're going to give them another hundred billion. Why don't you have them spend the money you already gave them? Right. Um, I know, like one one thing that Missouri did was set aside a portion of the stimulus funds to a transportation grant program that districts can apply to get reimbursed for extra transportation costs during COVID, which is kind of weird because a lot of them just were shut down and they didn't even have any buses. And they have like up to two years to apply to get reimbursed. So it's like way out in the future. Like, yeah. as you said, COVID will be in the rearview mirror when when people are trying to spend down these funds. Yeah, I just this is the problem when Washington just throws around too much money. There, there's there's no real structure to it. There's not much of a plan. There's not much of a purpose. It's money looking for something to do. And yeah. people, this is no big deal because money's free. It's, it's but it's not free. Um this is going on to the national debt. Um, this is a lot of it is funded with the printing press. There is a danger of inflation, there is a big danger of the national debt growing out of control. That's going to cost us in the long term. This is, you know, I hear people say that it's going to be your children and grandchildren who pay for it, but I feel like we have successfully kicked the can down the road for a very long time now, right? We have for a while, but things are about to get really bad. Why? Because the baby boomers are retiring. Yeah. Um, The, you know, the, the, it's it's the the baby boomers have have two thirds of them have basically retired or about will will have retired in the next couple of years. We're going to get to most of them retiring by 2030. That's the point where spending takes off. According to the Congressional Budget Office, we are projected even before President Biden was elected to run a hundred trillion dollars in baseline deficits over the next 30 years. That is the rosy scenario. That's if you assume all tax cuts expire, you do not count any Biden funding, no wars, no recessions, and interest rates stay low forever, you get $100 trillion because Social Security and Medicare are just taking off now. And that's what we're pouring fuel on the fire for. You're right, the deficits haven't been as bad up until now, but the numbers in the next 10 to 20 years get brutally bad. I mean, again, $100 trillion. What does that mean that, like, when I retire, my Social Security check will not be what I thought it was going to be? They're going to have to start lowering those benefits, right, and pushing the age of retirement out? That or and or drastically raising taxes. And that's yeah. my worry is I think they're going to end up – I don't think they're actually going to make many changes to Social Security and Medicaid. Okay. I think they're going to – drastically raise our taxes. And I've, I've done reports gaming out the numbers uh, just to stabilize the national debt, not even like balance the budget, but let's just say stabilize it at its current share of the economy. You would have to either raise the payroll tax to 35%. Wow. Or create a 30% value added tax, which is essentially a national sales tax, 30%. And, and, if it sounds crazy, this is how Europe funds their yeah. big government. Our Social Security and Medicare are going to make our government the size of Europe's governments. You want a European government, you're going to get European taxes. You're going to get huge payroll taxes and huge value-added taxes. Unless we start to really make reforms to Social Security and Medicare, 
and I don't know, not blow $6 trillion on other spending in six months. Yeah, that's crazy. And and we're going to end up with European uh, services too, right? Like Europe, Europe doesn't even come close to us on patents issued or on innovation and entrepreneurship. And that's because of our favorable tax system. And if we let it become like Europe's, we're going to end up like Europe's where we're not going to have any of that. Exactly. And, and actually, you know, it's funny. People say, well, Europe does okay. To get what you're, what you're saying, Europe essentially free rides off America's innovation. That's right. We have more of a free market system. We do a lot of the innovation and inventing and investment, and then they kind of free ride off, off, free ride off us, particularly technology, pharmaceuticals. If we're not the ones creating it anymore, it's going to hurt everybody. They can't right. off of us, and we're going to suffer too. So Missouri, similarly, in a, in a microcosm, our budget is being consumed by Medicaid. And I don't think that people realize, like, even if we do nothing, we'll have less money to spend on roads and schools because Medicaid is growing uh, faster than the total budget's growing. And just by definition, it's just going to keep eating more and more of it. And I don't see a path forward there. Um, we voted to expand Medicaid, but we're not funding that. But it's just a fact that unless we raise taxes, we are going to have to give up services and send the money to Medicaid. Medicaid has been growing about 7% per year for about 15 years. That is completely unsustainable. We're seeing the same thing at the federal government, about 7% annual growth. At that rate, that means Medicaid doubles every 10 years. Wow. You can't afford to do that. It, it, it starts in state budgets. It just starts to, to swallow up everything else. Yep. It swallows up infrastructure. It can start to put pressure on education. Uh, correction spending can start to get squeezed. All, uh, you know, parks, all, all utilities, something has to be done on healthcare. Healthcare is really going to bankrupt us. And Medicaid is especially going to continue getting worse because Medicaid covers long-term care. You know, met people. Oh yeah, that's most of it. I don't think people realize it's mostly people in nursing homes. Yeah, it, it, Medicaid, Medicaid is not costing us all of this money because of kids, you know, right. kids, kids, kids getting their shots. Yeah. It's seniors and long-term care who've exhausted their resources end up on Medicaid. Medicaid is paying for all the nursing homes. That's right. And the costs are, are enormous. That's right. So, okay, but here we are now. We got a big check from the federal government. We do have infrastructure problems that are being crowded out by Medicaid. One, one of your four points is that we make it very difficult to get these projects started and finished. Yeah, increasingly difficult, right? It is remarkable. We have the most expensive, inefficient yeah. infrastructure building in, in in the world. I mean, and progressing the wrong direction. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to give some examples, I mean, we our federal investment has a return of only five percent compared to the private sector has a return of ten percent. Let me give you some of some of the examples. The per mile cost of interstate highway construction quadrupled from 1960 to 1990 after inflation and has continued to grow since. Why? Um, in part because the Davis-Bacon raises costs by 22%. Explain what Davis-Bacon is. Davis-Bacon says you have to pay the people who build the highways these highly inflated wages that are often way over market rates, sometimes double market rates. That raises wage costs 22%. Um, you also have one of the big drivers are our environmental reviews. It takes seven years to do the environmental review for a major project on average. 
sometimes as much as 17 years or more just to do the environmental impact statement. These are typically a thousand pages. They, they go to court. Contrast that with Europe and Canada. Canada can do the, does their environmental statements in two years max. Europe, you have three years max to do an environmental statement. And additionally, in those countries, if somebody protests the environmental statement, you work it out administratively. In America, anybody can file a lawsuit if they feel that they're going to be harmed by a project. You can't break ground until every lawsuit is finished. And so in America, we have veto by lawsuit. These environmental impact statements can take so long. Um, so you just say, I don't want that bridge built in my backyard, or I don't want that highway to go through my backyard. So I'm going to sue to say that, uh, to at least um, gum up the process. Exactly. And you can, one, one, one lawsuit can delay the process 10, 15 years. A great example, Megan McArdle recently, the columnist recently pointed out that the Southeast Regional Rail was proposed in 1992. And in 2017, they finished the draft of the environmental wow. impact statement. It took 25 years. Your, your article in the National Review, you contrast the Empire State Building with the Big Dig in Boston. Exactly. I mean, the uh, the Empire State Building was built in 410 days. You can't get a house built in that. Yeah. The, I mean, exactly. The, the Big Dig took 25 years. High-speed rail in California is going to take 40 years if they even do that. Oh, Death by lawsuits. And so you have all these sorts of slow points. We have we have bad performance by contractors. We have the Davis, we have Davis Bacon uh, raising costs 22%. Uh, Can we fix these? What? Can we fix these? Can yes. we get rid of Davis Bacon? Or? Absolutely. We con there was legislation in Congress to repeal Davis Bacon. It never passes because Congress listens to the unions. Um, we there is we could do better oversight of contractors. We could we could streamline the environmental impact statements the same way Canada and Europe does. And one of the things that's so infuriating about the president's proposal is he puts hundreds of billions of dollars into a lot of these programs. And not only is there no reform to fix these problems, he actually makes the cost higher. Yeah. <laughs> Two reasons. First, he has proposed that we do more to require that only more expensive union workers get all construction contracts. Uh, which is tough because only about 11% of the construction industry is even unionized. Wow. Anybody who's less expensive would be barred from, from getting it. Additionally, the president would strengthen the Buy America provisions that say you, you can't buy, if you're, if you're doing federal infrastructure, you can't buy any imports. Oh my gosh. Your inputs for your materials. Now, I understand a lot of people feel strongly about Buy America. There, you know, there are arguments on both sides. But it does raise costs. It of course it does. 10, 20, 30% if you can't buy imports. So if we're going to have all of these ideas, buy America, only the most expensive union workers, you're going to have the most expensive proposals in the world. You are going to have fewer, you're going to be able to hire fewer people and right. you get fewer highways paved. Than yeah, fewer miles. That's what I keep thinking. Like you're going to get fewer miles for the dollar. Exactly. That that's the that's the choice we have made as a country. That's crazy. That's crazy. I know. I was one time. I was a uh, long time ago. 
visiting some schools in Massachusetts, the charter schools and non-charter schools. And the charter schools had just had the parents come in and paint the cafeteria before the school um, year started. And the finance guy I was talking to in the public school said that he had parents paint once and had to go back and pay unionized workers, union wages for what they would have earned if they had painted it. And so it was like, my hands are so tied in what I can and can't do by the rules that just make it harder to to get things done. Exactly. I mean, this is this is what raises costs. You know, we also have project labor agreements that are mandatory in a lot of states. Project labor agreements say that if a contractor is going to build something, they have to go to a union and basically play by all the union rules. Project labor agreements can raise the cost of school construction by 30% in some states. You know, and again, there are a lot of good union people who say, well, this is great for me. I'm not sure you're getting 30% more productivity. I'm not sure the school is getting built 30% better, um, but you're going to pay 30% more. And you, you're right. You have all these silly union rules. Like you have to have union workers do certain things. If there's a cheaper alternative, have volunteers do it, have parents do it. You can't. You can't. First priority is paying the unions. Okay, so we've got the big uh, stimulus funds. You think there's going to be more stimulus this year? Yes. Uh, you do? Yes. Uh, much of the proposals are set to expire in mid to late summer. The economy should be doing great by mid to late summer, but knowing Congress, they're going to continue expanding things like unemployment benefits and extending unemployment benefits. This this could go for a, another year or two. You know, I remember during the last recession. They kept doing bonus unemployment benefits until 2013, even wow. though the session was over in the summer of 2009. It's really hard for Congress to let to let the stuff expire. Additionally, the president's already proposed making a lot of the stimulus stuff permanent. I know. Child credit expansion, yep. <laughs> expansion, Obamacare expansion. This is trillions of dollars and the president wants to make it permanent. So I don't think that people understand this concept that if you give some somebody something for a while, then when even if it's a temporary thing, you've got to get this for 12 months. The minute it goes away, they feel like they that something's been taken away from them. Exactly. Right? The cliff. You could create dependency so quickly. And these kind of things, I think that's what worries me, is it's gonna create dependency so quickly. Um, even people who who have decent jobs and they have a baby in the next few months, that's $300 a month. That's going to get like factored into their childcare decision, right? They're going to pick a place kind of factoring in the $300. And when it goes away, it's going to be like they lost $300. Exactly. It becomes a benefit cliff. It goes into people's baselines. And, and, and what happens then at the end of the year is you have Congress saying, don't take away my don't take away my money. Don't take away my money. Well, often it's not your money. It's a benefit that you were getting. But it creates a benefit cliff that is almost impossible to take away. And so it just it becomes part of the expensive baseline. That's why, you know, when Biden was saying, oh, let's just create these temporary stimulus provisions, you and I knew the, right. This stuff's not going to be temporary. It's not going to go away and it's not paid for. That's right. So let's just say that Brian Riedel is president of the United States. You're king of the United States. What would you do in the next 12 months to get this back on track? Uh, first thing I would do is stop digging. Uh, <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. 
we're, we're, we know how deep we are in the hole, I suppose. Huge stimulus spending, huge infrastructure. I think on infrastructure, I would have states use their windfalls and folks, anything that we do at the federal level to supplement, we could offset. Uh, we could offset $500 billion of federal spending over 10 years pretty easily through discretionary spending. Okay. And then I would address the infrastructure waste and delays, streamline the environmental impact statements, yeah. address Davis-Bacon, address the cost of, of these policies. I think you could leverage about a trillion dollars of infrastructure spending on real infrastructure, roads, bridges, highways, mm -hmm. electrical grid, without adding a penny in taxes and without adding a penny to the debt. And you could have it that trillion dollars go about twice as far as you could otherwise without the underlying reforms. Beyond that, I think what I would focus on, you know, if, if I were if I were the decision maker, yeah, you have carte blanche. Schools reopen. Let's get people back to work. Let's get the vaccine out there for, for people who want it. Let let let's reopen the economy. Let's be careful not to keep the unemployment benefit bonus, the three hundred dollar bonus forever, because. Yeah that's gonna lower the chances of getting more people to work. I would focus, get the economy going, do no harm and do a trillion dollars of infrastructure without adding taxes or debt. What would you do about the debt? How do we get out of that? How do we get out from under that thing? The long-term, I, I wouldn't do anything drastic while people are still in a recession. Long-term, you have to fix social security and Medicare. Um, What's the fix? Just, I mean, the first number, before I get to the fix on it, I mentioned specifically when I said the $100 trillion in deficits, to give the specific numbers, CBO says we're going to run $104 trillion in deficits over the next 30 years. $101 trillion of that is Social Security and Medicare shortfalls. Wow. The rest of the budget is balanced. Wow. We are going to, so the Social Security and Medicare systems will run a $101 trillion 30-year shortfall. So if we're going to fix the debt, you're going to have to fix Social Security and Medicare. You can't cut other spending by $101 trillion. No. You, you could wipe out, you could eliminate the rest of the budget. It wouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no $101 trillion tax hike. Um, in fact, even if you did every single progressive tax proposal, it wouldn't even balance the it would it wouldn't even balance today's budget, much less the long term. So I think you fix Social Security and Medicare. On Social Security, relatively straightforward. You adjust the eligibility age upwards. You start to trim benefits at the top. And I think you probably have to look at doing a little bit on raising the payroll tax because I hate taxes. I hate raising taxes. I'm not able to bring Social Security into solvency just from trimming benefits at the top and yeah. raising the age. You might just have to do a little bit of, the, of, of it on the uh, payroll tax. Medicare is much more complicated because you don't just have demographics, you have healthcare, you have, you have health inflation. You have the healthcare system, which is broken. I would look at policies like moving Medicare to a premium support system. Yeah. You get to shop around for private plans and you get the gov a, a government to help pay for the cost of, of the plans. I think choice and competition according to the Congressional Budget Office, would mean 7% lower costs without sacrificing quality. Wow. I would also have wealthy seniors pay more for their Medicare coverage for Parts B and D 
This is the part of Medicare that's not pre-funded by payroll taxes. It's mm-hmm. just a check from the government. I'm not sure that re- millionaire seniors need big checks from the government. And then you just have to do, again, broader healthcare system. You have to look at the drivers of costs, regulations, third-party payments. You got to fix healthcare. All of that will help on Medicare, but anyone who thinks that they have the full solution to solve healthcare is lying. I think those proposals can help stabilize it, but even more will be needed after that because healthcare is really hard. I mean, we learned some things during the shutdown though, right? Like we learned how to get to be more efficient. We learned how to get medical care without going to see a doctor. You know, yeah. we learned ways that, um, and I think fewer, I, don't, I just don't want to give a statistic. I don't know if it's right, but I think fewer people are seeking uh, emergency medical care. I mean, like we had to be a little bit more um, self-sufficient in getting our medical care. And we got to take some takeaways from that. Same thing with education. I mean, there's got to be some takeaways there, right? We've got to figure this out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, on, on healthcare, if we if, if we don't get healthcare costs under control, healthcare will bankrupt us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's our biggest problem. On education as well. I mean, we've had costs rising drastically over the years. Uh, and the per pupil spending is going through the roof without results, without okay. tests rising. We've moved a little bit in the right direction on education in that in the last decade, we've reduced the federal footprint a little bit. <laughs> we had some buyer's remorse from No Child Left Behind. Yeah. Um, and we've Congress has started to move towards a little more local control on so on, on education. There's a lot of lot of work to do. I mean, I think what you know, what happened, a lot of the reason that education spending has gone up with um, per pupil is staffing surges and we've just added a lot of staff. So I wonder if from COVID, we could learn something like that. There's a lot of paraprofessionals. There's a lot of staff. I don't know, uh, you know, the decisions that are made. I do know that those people help the bottom of the pension pyramid a little bit. That's nefarious to say that that's the reason, but it doesn't hurt that you get a larger bottom of the pyramid for the pension system. We've had a lot, we've had way more staff than we have teachers. And so if it becomes the case that we've learned how to, be more efficient with our distribution of staffing in education this past year, then I hope that we take that as a takeaway. But I'm really glad to talk to you because I feel like I've talked to others about my worry about this printing money thing. It feels like we're printing money. It feels like it's a trillion here and a trillion here and two trillion and five trillion. And that's just a lot of money. And just being given to states that are or education departments that don't even know what to do with it. Like, let's not give it. Let's let people come and say what they need. Versus just like give money. I agree. We're, we're, we're pretty much, we're, we're sending out the money first and then seeing right. if they can find a use for it. Well, there's oh yeah. we'll do. Of course, politicians will find a way to spend money. Yeah. It may not be effective or efficient, but they will, they're in the business of playing Santa Claus. They will find some interest group to give the money to that they can then expect to support them at election time. Of course, they're going to find it, but we need needs-based spending. We need to set priorities, make trade-offs, see what, where we need the money. Uh, because like I said, we've got $100 trillion in budget shortfalls coming yeah. up over the next 30 years. It's going to get really ugly. And I'm wondering if 10 years from now, when the baseline budget deficits are $3, 4000000000000 trillion, interest rates are rising, inflation is rising, the debt is 150% of GDP, they're going to look back 10 years to 2021 and yep. go, what were they thinking? I think you're right. 
It's the Milton Friedman spending. that money today. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's the Milton Friedman spending other people's money on other people, right? The least efficient exactly. way to spend money. So well, it was great talking to you. It's a little depressing, but it was good. <laughs> I have to say, it's a little depressing, but I hope that you'll come check back in in a year or so. And we can uh, up get up back up to date on this because I it it keep it really does worry me a lot. And uh, there's got to be, you know, it can't be Christmas every day. No, no, we we have we have some very painful trade-offs that everyone's kind of denying and ignoring right now. Right. And the laws of economics have a way of biting you in the butt later. So. Well, well said. <laughs> On that note, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. And uh, let's talk again another time. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org. Thank you.